highlights from Genesis 2 and 3 in the story of Adam and Eve. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams uh, came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. If you remember the cosmos we saw last week, with lots of water under the ground and above the sky. It was the view of the cosmos at this time. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, that's something to remember, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The only statement made about them. They were naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And notice he didn't refuse. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, in one of the best lines in the Bible, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. God blames the woman and God in the same sentence. That takes skill right there. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and, flaming, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And then our second scripture is much shorter. It comes from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. Remember that phrase? 
God breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May God add a blessing to the reading, understanding, and doing of God's word. Why write a book on Genesis? Well, you know, in the 20th century, particularly, Genesis became a lightning rod issue because of uh, the intersection of science and history. And as those things began to emerge and began to what seemingly uh, was contradict and conflict with what the Bible was saying, it really raised two important questions that we've been wrestling with ever since. And that is, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And so we wanted to write a book really to dive into those questions of what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And Genesis was a great place to start. So that's Jared Bias. He's going to be our, uh, our, our special guest two weeks from today, May 19th. He's the co-author of this book, Genesis for Normal People, as you know if you've been here, and uh, along with Pete Enns. And uh, we're studying this book in our Connect group. We started this past Wednesday with 17 people in, in the living room. It was great. Uh, awesome discussion. Um, some people said they wanted to be there. They couldn't make Wednesday nights. So in the future, what we want to do, um, three times a year, we want to have these cycles of one groups on different nights of the week. We want to multiply them. And so if you'd like to come, you can. Um, and this is week two of our series in the beginning, Genesis for Normal People. It's loosely based on this book. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at the first book of the Bible that these guys call the most uh, controversial, misunderstood, and abused book in the Bible. And we're looking at... Uh, what Genesis can mean for us as 21st century thinking people, post-scientific revolution. There are a lot of people who have questions when they read books in the Bible like Genesis and how does that apply? What's historical? What's scientific? Does it have to be historical and scientific? If it's not, does that mean that it's true and that I can follow scripture as a guide for my life? And, and they're trying to figure that out. And one of the, our values here is uh, the well is a place where you're free to express your questions and your doubts. Uh, your, uh, sorry, your faith and your doubts, both. And so that's what we want to do in this series. And uh, as most of us know, there has been an adversarial relationship between the Bible and science for at least the past 150 years, in some, in some ways, uh, even going back to Augustine who, in the fourth century, who did some writing about this topic. But um, since Darwin released Origin of Species about 150 years ago, there was a reaction by some Christians, and, and we give them the benefit of the doubt, and they love God, and they love the Bible, and they believe that they needed to protect the Bible from what they saw as an attack by Darwin on the creation account in Genesis. And, and they believe that evolution was a threat uh, to the Christian faith. And because of that, we've gotten the idea in our society that sometimes people have to choose. Can I take God seriously? Can I take the Bible seriously? Can intelligent people take the Bible seriously? Can I be a thinking person and still be a Christian? And that's not the only issue, of course. There are lots of reasons. You know, as people watch you know, so-called religious leaders on TV today, they get lots of ideas about what it means to be a Christian. And, and some are like, no thanks. But this is one of, the, one of the barriers to faith that many people have felt. And so back in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee... There was uh, an event that captured the attention of the country called the Scopes Monkey Trial. And uh, in the Scopes Monkey Trial, a teacher was put on trial for teaching evolution in school because Tennessee had outlawed the teaching of evolution. 
And the prosecuting attorney was uh, a man named Williams Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan. And, and he believed that evolution should not be taught in the classroom. And it became a media spectacle. The whole nation saw this and it forever cemented this idea in pop culture that science and the Bible are enemies. That it's hard to be a thinking Christian and also take science seriously. And, and William Jennings Bryan was a young earth creationist. And we have young earth creationists today. There's nothing wrong with that belief. I don't, I don't mean to condemn. I don't mean to mock. But that's, that's a view that some folks have a hard time with. But young earth creationism is that the earth is about 6,000 years old. And that God created it in six literal days. Six literal 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. While the findings of modern science would say the universe is 13.7 billion, give or take. A few billion, I don't know, give or take a few hundred million. 13.7 billion years old, and the earth is 4.3 billion years old. Well, it was in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. And uh, in the early 80s, I believe, uh, somebody else who was a resident of Dayton, Tennessee, uh, began, was born, and, and uh, as she grew up, she went to Bryan College, and uh, she began writing about her own faith journey. And um, one of her first books, I don't think it was her first, but one of her first books was a book called Evolving in Monkey Town, which is the nickname of the town there at Dayton, Tennessee. How uh, a girl who knew everything learned to ask questions. And of course, that author was Rachel Held Evans, if you're familiar with her at all. And, and she passed away yesterday. It was a stunning loss for a more thinking, open-minded approach to Christianity. And I think she had a two-week battle with infection. It's an allergic reaction. Is that the news, right? to antibiotics and she leaves behind a husband and two little children three years old and almost one year old and and she has been such a, a bright light in this world and, and somebody to be honest with you I look at her and I feel like well that's somebody who's on the same team and maybe some of you feel that way as well maybe you've read her materials but she grew up in Dayton Tennessee and um, she Went to Bryan. Her dad was an administrator there, Bryan College, because there's a college there named after William Jennings Bryan. And she was raised in that, in that atmosphere where the Bible was um, taken very literally in everything it affirms, including matters of history and science. And, and so she uh, began writing about her journey, questioning that. And uh, she inspired a lot of people. One of the things I appreciate about her the most is that as she questioned, as she expressed her doubts, at the same time, she held on to Jesus, and she held on to church. And, and not only that, but she was conciliatory. She was a bridge builder. She reached out to people who disagreed with her. She was gracious to them. And to lose somebody like her now in the time we live in is just, oh. You know, you feel that? We need people. We need more people like her. And, and maybe that's a challenge to us, that we can follow her example. And uh, I think there are probably thousands and thousands of people missing her and grieving her loss right now that want to follow her example. Well, that's the kind of thing we're doing in this series. And so last week, to, to uh, recap quickly, we talked about the view of the cosmos that is found in the book of Genesis. This was a view of the ancient world. It was the view of uh, the people of Babylon, uh, where um, the Garden of, Eden, uh, Garden of Eden is, uh, is set. And, and there's some clues that, that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 were perhaps composed in Babylon, in what, it, what was Mesopotamia, one of the cradles of civilization, what is now Iraq. And the Babylonians held this view of the world, and this is the view of the world we get from Genesis chapter 1, that uh, 
There are wa there's water above the earth and there's water below the earth and God separates those waters. We learned that the god Marduk in Babylonian literature called the Enuma Elish split a sea monster in half, Tiamat. And one half of Tiamat became the water above and one half of Tiamat became the water below. In Genesis 1, we read something very different. You know, there, there's, no, uh, there's no war, God just speak, uh, speaks peacefully to the creation and God separates the waters. And we looked at Noah chapter six and we said, you know, there are people who have questions about the great flood and it says that the water was, was uh, several feet higher than the highest mountain on, on planet earth. And we know that's Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. And if, if that's the case, we don't know where all that water went. We're not, we don't have that answer. But if this is the view of the world, then that makes perfect sense. Because there's lots of water above and below, and there was, there water, uh, was water that came up out of the ground and watered the garden, right? Before there was rain in Genesis 2 and 3. So um, for people who have questions about the Bible and science, well, there was a different view of the cosmos at that time. They didn't have weather, weather satellites. They didn't have the Hubble Space Telescope. If you have this view of the world, then a flood that covers the highest mountains makes perfect sense. And it makes perfect sense that water comes up out of the ground. We have a different view of the world today, but this view came uh, from the ancient world, including the Babylonians as well. So the Barna Group, an evangelical research organization, evangelical, conservative evangelical research organization, found that about half of all teenagers who are in church in the United States believe that uh, their churches are anti-science. And that has ramifications for the United States. That has ramifications for educational system, it has ramifications for the economy, and the, the United States' ability to compete in the world, let's just be honest. When young people are raised to have a skeptical view of science. But last week we saw that Genesis seems to be about something other than that. It seemed, it's different from a science book. It seems to be about who God is, and who we are in relationship to God, and who we are in relationship to all of creation. We saw how God creates humans worthy of dignity and respect, and you don't have to be a machine. You don't have to be overworked. You're not, you're not AI. You're a human, and you're, you're God's senior vice president in the world. You need a day of rest. You need a personal vacation day every week. We talked about that last week um, from uh, the first chapter of Genesis, and today we're moving on to Genesis 2 and 3, the story of Adam and Eve. There are different approaches to this story. Some folks uh, take the approach that uh, God has so inspired the writing of the Bible, the biblical books, that everything that is said is literally, historically, and scientifically true, or God is a liar. There are other people who take a view, and I have, I have a graph here to kind of show the spectrum. There's, there's a spectrum of uh, these views. Other people take the view that to be uh, divinely inspired uh, means that, well, there were human authors, and they... they were inspired in the sense that an artist would look at a sunset and feel inspired. And, and they were moved and their senses were heightened and that's what it means that the Bible is inspired. And there's lots of you know, views in between. But Christians traditionally have believed that God somehow inspired the writing of the biblical books. If you're a skeptic, you think that's ridiculous. Right? If you're a person of faith, then maybe you, maybe you hold that view to some degree. But there's a spectrum between the, the level of human involvement and God's involvement. So about 150 years ago, when Darwin wrote Origin of Species, there were some people who felt threatened by that. And while Christians have always believed that there was some kind of divine human partnership in the authorship of, of the biblical books, uh, these folks reacted against Darwin and they really went hard to, to the, the divine end of the spectrum. 
And like we said, meaning that God has so inspired the writing of the biblical books that they must be true in everything they affirm, or God is a liar. And that culminated in 1979 with a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And, and they decided that God didn't dictate the Bible to human beings, but every word is from God. And so you might have, you know, you might have a difficult time figuring out the difference between those two things. But they, they believe that every single word in Scripture comes from God. And everything that we read that makes any kind of a scientific claim about the origins of the earth or something that happened in history, it must be true or God is a liar. And if God's lying to us in Genesis, then we can't believe what God says about the resurrection of Jesus. And God's lying to us in Jeremiah. And God's lying to us in the letters of Paul. And, and so now, if, if you have children who are raised in that belief, then they have a choice to make. Once they hit biology, their sophomore year of high school, at least that's what, they probably have it in like third grade now. I had it my sophomore year in high school. Kids now, they're like on the accelerated track in education, but I was, I was a sophomore. And, uh, and they, they feel like they have to make a choice. Okay, well, my parents believe this, and my pastor believes this about science in the Bible, but my biology teacher is telling me something different. So either God is a liar, or my science teacher is a liar. That's kind of a tough weight for a high schooler to carry. Would you agree? And some of us may have been, you know, maybe, we, maybe that was our experience. But they have, to, they have to choose. Is God lying to me? Or are 95, 98% of scientists in the world lying to me? And that has ramifications, doesn't it? for how we view evidence and how we view medicine and how we view science and observation and a human being's ability to look at evidence and learn new things. Because if, if, if you know, most scientists are liars, then you know, we, we can't trust them, obviously, and there's a conspiracy. And that, that puts young Christians in a tough place. So a few quick things here about the authorship of the Bible. We're going to speed through these and get to uh, what Adam and Eve might mean for us too. So the Bible is not a book. Um, the Bible is a collection of books. Uh, in the Protestant Bible, there are 66 books. If you grew up Catholic, you have a few extras called the Apocrypha that are in between the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And the Bible is a collection of books. What do we call a collection of books? Some of you are like the, the top of the toilet tank. I don't know. What do I, you know, where... In my house, it's everywhere I find a flat surface. That's a collection of books, and my wife has to go around and put the books back where they go. What do we call it? I heard it. Library. A library. So the Bible is a collection of books we would call a library. It's not one book. It's more like a library. They're all written between 1000 BC and 100 AD, give or take. We're not sure. They were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, mostly Hebrew and Greek, a little bit of Aramaic. The Bible we find, and this is a tough one for some, if they took the view of William Jennings Bryan, that, that God has so inspired every single word that every word is from God. But as we look at the evidence, the Bible seems to speak with multiple vo voices on some issues. If you look at Paul in Romans 5 and look at Matthew chapter 25, you get in a little bit of a different idea about what faith and salvation means. When Paul says we're justified by faith and Matthew paints the picture of the sheep on the right and the goats on the left and whatever you did for these, least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. The Bible doesn't, I would say, the Bible doesn't speak with one voice on every issue. And the Bible, of course, contains many genres of literature. Genre means type, as you know, types of literature. So we know there's some biography type and history type and there's some wisdom literature type and there's some poetry type. When you read Psalm 23... 
Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, at least one of them. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Does that mean you're a literal sheep? When you read that scripture, do you start saying, bah, is God a literal shepherd carrying around a shepherd's staff and, and you get sheared once a year, apparently? Do, or, or do you consider genre of literature? You Oh, that's a metaphor. That's poetry. And so we know that genre needs to be interpreted, well, genres need to be uh, interpreted according to whatever genre they are. But um, what happens is that um, folks who hold a view of the Bible that every single word comes from God are confronted with some of these things, and it, it, it makes that view, it challenges that view, let's put it that way. And if you hold that view, then I want to say welcome home. You, you have a place here. You, we have a diversity of beliefs here, and that's fine. Welcome home. But there are some challenges to that view. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark is written in Greek. Uh, whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark, we can assume it's Mark. That's fine. Maybe Greek was not his first language. There's some messy grammar in Mark. Mark's not the most well-written gospel in the world. Uh, there was some sentence structure that's a little off in Greek. And so if God inspired every word of Mark, that means God inspired some bad grammar and some bad sentence structure. And then Matthew and Luke, and we're not making fun, we're making factual statements here. And then Matthew and Luke borrow heavily from Mark. And when I say borrow heavily, Matthew takes 95% of Mark and pulls it into Matthew's gospel. Matthew would have gotten kicked out of college. Right? But that, there were different standards in the ancient world. We, they didn't have the same idea of plagiarism that we have. But Mark and Luke, or excuse me, Matthew and Luke, they clean up Mark's grammar. So they take it all except for the, the bad grammar. And so when God inspired Matthew and Luke, then God inspired them with better grammar. In, in the book uh, of Daniel, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Daniel starts off in Hebrew, and then it switches to Aramaic, and then it goes back to Hebrew. And so when God inspired the writer of Daniel, God threw him a curveball. You know, you, Wait, God, you just switched to Aramaic? And then, okay, so God inspired in, in, in two different languages then, apparently. If God is inspiring every word of the Bible. And so there are challenges to that view. It's, it's almost a view that God dictated uh, the scripture to the human authors. So, like most things in life, uh, most Christians are probably somewhere in between. And, and if you accept the faith statement that God somehow inspired the writing of Scripture, well, there may be some questions about how God did that. But there's some evidence that we can look at that can help us figure out what might be an intellectually honest way to view the Bible as an authority in our lives, and, and a primary authority, our guide. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Bible has been called infallible and trustworthy in matters of faith and practice, like 2 Timothy says it's useful and reliable to equip us for every good work. And so that, that view was good enough until Darwin came along and then it culminated in 1979 with that statement on inerrancy, that the Bible now is inerrant. Just interestingly enough, one of the people who didn't sign that statement was Billy Graham because he viewed it as divisive. He, th he thought it was unnecessary. So he didn't sign that 79 statement. So just a little bit about the Bible. Now moving on to Adam and Eve. When I was in high school, um, I uh, got to be about 16 and started taking my faith a little bit more seriously. And so picture, uh, picture me about 40 pounds skinnier uh, with a lot more acne 
And uh, I thought that would be funnier. That's fine. It's perfectly fine to make fun of me because I'm going to make fun of me. And uh, a squeaky voice. And, and um, I started to take my faith more seriously. 16 is about the time abstract reasoning really develops. And uh, I, had, I had made a decision to follow Jesus, actually watching Billy Graham on TV when I was 11. And, and five years later, in high school, I started taking my faith a little bit more seriously. It was actually the story of Adam and Eve that helped me to take my faith more seriously and think about how it can apply in this world. Because what I saw in Adam and Eve was, uh, yeah, I mean, they're kind of presented as adults, I mean, husband and wife, but at the same time, they're kind of childlike. They're in a state of innocence. But it's, it, it looks like it's a coming-of-age story. It looks like people who are growing up and maturing and they're discovering things in life. And there's some temptation along the way. There's some pitfalls they have to avoid. And to me, that felt like a pretty good description of high school. Like, I looked around and, and uh, you know, all the things that happened to you in high school and the new decisions you're presented with and what you see people doing. And, and, uh, and this, is, this is in the 90s, right after Nirvana broke, you know. And, and so there's like this, this, this culture of uh, there's a lot of drugs. There's, you know, lots of temptations. And so as I looked, as I looked around in, in high school, I, I thought, wow, Adam and Eve, that kind of, kind of makes sense to me. It kind of paints a picture of what human life is really like. It's, like it's, it's saved by the bell. It's Degrassi High. Am I preaching to anybody here? Amen, brothers. It's uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, bring it up to Twilight and catch the younger people a little bit here. Harry Potter even, right? There's this, there's this coming of age experience that is common to all humans. And it seems to be that Adam and Eve are experiencing something like that. So let's dive into the story. God creates Adam out of the dust. In Hebrew, Adam is the word for dust or dirt. So out of the dirt, God creates dirt man or dusty, right? Some of the women are like, amen, brother. And, and so God makes this man out of the dust and he's named after the dust, and, but, but he's alone. And so God takes a part of his body, not from his head, not from his feet, but from his side, and he has a companion now. He's no longer alone. And God places them in a utopia, a self-watering garden from all that water underneath the earth and their view of the cosmos. And it's perfect and lush and life is great. And there are two trees in the middle. And then there's a talking snake with legs. And that snake challenges what God has told them. They eat the fruit. And all of a sudden, it's just incredible. Think of all the things that could be said to summarize them, first of all, before they ate the fruit, they were naked and they felt no shame. Think, I mean, of all the things you could say about a human, I've just created humans, here's my humans. Of all the things you could say about them, one summary statement is made. They were naked and they felt no shame. You ever go to somebody's house and they have little kids and their kids just run out naked and it's like this awkward thing and they're like, go put some clothes on, you know? You do that at 35, that's jail time. Right, kids? I tell my boys, I'm like, you know, no man wants to wear pants. Let's just be honest, right? In, in home, if you, if, you know, if you surprise a guy at home, you're probably going to find that out, unfortunately. I tell my boys, the cops make us wear pants. That's just the way it is, guys. As you grow up, the cops make us wear pants. And so kids, they just don't care. They don't, have that, they don't have that sense of shame. They just run out naked in front of all the house guests, right? And Adam and Eve are in this state of innocence like this. They were naked and they felt no shame. But that changes, they eat the fruit, their eyes are open, they know good and evil. They ha- they've now developed moral capacity, right? They're like the, they're, me covered with acne at 16. They're starting to figure out life. And, and something happens, that their eyes are open and they realize they're naked. And they feel ashamed. And they're supposed to be married, right? 
So I, I don't know. I mean, you could apply that to all kinds of things. Our, our, our sense of body image and body shaming, and that's, that applies. But for some reason, they felt shame. They felt so much shame, they hid from God. They were afraid. Adam says, I was afraid because I saw I was naked, so I hid. When God says, where are you? When God came looking for them, he said, I was afraid of you. Because I was naked, I was ashamed. So I hid. So God comes looking. Where are you? And he says, I was afraid of you. Afraid of God. Why? Because I'm ashamed. So I hid. Can you identify with Adam? Afraid of God. Having a view of God that, that causes you to be afraid of God. And your view of religion, your view of church, your experience has been one of shame. I'm afraid, I feel ashamed, so I hide. I, I, I have this distance in my spiritual life. I have all, this, all these questions. I have an emotional baggage from bad experiences I've had. It's hard for me to even walk into a church service if it, is, if it isn't an elementary school. And, and I just, I, I'm afraid because I'm ashamed, and so I hide. Is that a description of your spiritual life? Well, it's been, been mine, yeah. And then Adam says, what happened? And, and, and just one of the best lines in the entire Bible, God blames Eve and God in one sentence. That woman you gave to me. That's like surgical precision in the blame game right there. That's, that takes practice to blame two people in one sentence. That woman you gave me. And the, the consequences make it clear God holds the serpent responsible. God holds the man responsible. God holds the woman responsible. This passage has been used to to demonize women. The, the archetype of the evil temptress comes out of passages like this in Pandora's box and others. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, actually. We're going to read a little Rachel Held Evans as we talk about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and, and, and their, uh, uh, the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis. We'll talk about the view of women there as well. But there's this idea that women ha are not to be trusted. You can't believe them. You know, because, and you have this archetype like this where, you know, she believed the serpent. But God says, they're, they're all responsible. Everybody's responsible here. Adam and, Adam and Eve share equal blame along with the, along with the serpent. And um, so there's no, there's no view of women. She's taken from his rib, not his head, not his feet. There's, there's no reason to look at this story and to subject women, although that's part of the curse. God says the serpent won't have legs anymore. God says the man's going to work hard until he returns to the dust that he came from. And God tells the woman she'll have pain in childbirth and her husband will rule over her. Now, it doesn't mean that that's God's will. But it is a reality of our world that women are subjected to many things that men are not. And when this story is twisted to support that, it's an example of putting the Bible on a pedestal where every single word comes from God and then I read my own views into it and then I claim that my own views are inerrant. My views on women, my views on the definition of marriage, my views on pick your poison, any controversial issue. I have a view, I read my view into it. Oh, I think that's what that means. And because it's inerrant, every word comes from God, therefore my interpretation is now inerrant. Do you see how that works? Have you experienced that before? Rachel Held Evans said, and uh, evolving, in Monkey Town, 
how a girl who knew all the answers learned to ask questions. She wrote, my interpretation can only be as inerrant as I am. And that's a good thing to keep in mind. My, even if the Bible is inerrant, my interpretation of it is not. And my interpretation can only be as inerrant as I am. And then right after that, they're expelled from the garden. They are ashamed. They're naked. What does God do for them? He makes some clothes. And then the very next line is Adam knew Eve in the biblical sense. And they have some kids. And they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And how does that go? Cain, they grow up and Cain murders his brother. And if you remember last week, we talked about how God brought good and order out of chaos. And now we see that because of these decisions, these humans, as they grow and they mature, we make some mistakes, we make some bad decisions. And what that does is it brings the waters of chaos back in. And, and the world becomes more and more violent. People hurt each other and we're more and more divided. And it's like you can't even have a conversation with some folks anymore. And, and you, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to read Facebook without becoming depressed sometimes. Because the chaos just comes back and, and the, the waters, uh, the flood waters of chaos come rushing back in. And then it's a couple chapters later we get to Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and the chaos is returned. And that good and beauty and order that God brought out of the creation, that chaos has now returned because of choices that we can make. And so this doesn't really read like a science book. And for people who love God and they love the Bible and they believe that science is a threat to their view of the Bible and they believe that God has inspired every single word and it must be historically and scientifically true, there, there are difficulties to holding that position. But this does not seem to be a science book. It's a different, it's, there's a different kind of message uh, that's being conveyed through the story of Adam and Eve. For example, you know, the questions that uh, Genesis 2 and 3 seem to be answering are not, you know, is evolution true? Where, where, where did humans come from? Is it, you know, was it 4.3 billion? It really doesn't seem to be addressing those questions. It seems to be asking questions like, do you blame your spouse for all the problems in your marriage? Adam did. Those are the kinds of questions that Genesis 2 and 3 seem to be asking. Very human questions. Adam and Eve, they look really human. And so do you blame your spouse for all the trouble in your marriage? And I don't know the specifics of marriage issues, but I know my own temptation to blame my excellent wife for things that are my fault. Do you do that? Do you, do you face that temptation like Adam and Eve did? And what happens if you give in to that temptation? Does that lead to any kind of utopian garden in your marriage? Or does it look more like the chaotic waters flooding back in when you blame your spouse for all the problems in your marriage? Now, some of you are sitting in your seat right now and you're thinking, but it is all their fault. Like, why wouldn't I blame them? Well, where does that lead? Family systems therapy tells us that if, even if it is, Mostly, or hey, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. All their fault. Family systems therapy tells us if one person in the family changes, everybody has to change. If you change one part of the family, if one person says, I want to get healthy and I want to clean my side of the street and I want to, I want to be the best person I can and, and grow and, 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 and overcome and, and resist temptation and, and resist the waters of chaos and I want to live a healthy life and live with wisdom and live well. If one person decides to do that, Everybody else has to change too. They may not like it, but they have to change. And maybe if that's the case with you, maybe you decide to get healthy. Maybe your family member is confronted with a choice now. And either I want to get healthy 
and, and be a team, or the floodwaters of chaos are going to come in. But that's their choice. You have the power to make your choice. You have the God-given power to accept responsibility for your part. And the question is, will you choose wisdom? Or will you just place all the blame like Adam did? Another question Genesis asks is, do you feel alone? Do you feel alone in this world? Now, you don't have to be married, obviously. There are people who are happy being single. That's, that's great. Fine. Actually, half of all US, U.S. adults are single, either divorced or never married or widowed. 50% of U.S. adults. If, uh, if you feel alone, though, um, it's not good for you to be alone. Everybody needs friends. Everybody needs community. And if you feel like, I don't have the friends and community that I really need in this world, I feel alone. Maybe you're in a relationship and you feel alone. That goes back to question number one. It's time to do some work and, 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 and get as healthy as you can. And then they're, they're going to be confronted with a choice. But if you feel like, I don't have friends, I don't have the community I want, welcome home. The church, the church is designed to be a family for you. And in the New Testament, they call each other brothers and sisters. Because there's a realization that sometimes people don't feel family, connections, and community in this world that we live in, this chaotic world we live in. So do you feel alone? Well, you don't have to. Welcome home. Another question it asks is, are you searching for knowledge and wisdom and you're trying to figure out life? Are you trying to figure out faith and doubt and how to get along you know, in, in, in the society that we live in now, in the divided time where maybe you've had some experiences in church where you're deconstructing your faith and, and you're not sure what to believe. The main point of Adam and Eve is to trust God for wisdom and not take shortcuts. This is wisdom literature. Wisdom means to live well. It means to live a healthy life and to live well. Do you trust God somehow, or is that hard for you? Is there a distance in your spiritual life because of things that people did to you that were wrong? And now you're afraid of God and you feel ashamed and you hide. Is that where you are? There are so-called religious leaders all over our media, cable news, Facebook, Twitter, making pronouncements all the time about who's in and who's out and, and, and stoking the fire of this culture war. And when you see those people and you're turned off by their messages, is your faith weakened? When you see people acting in ways that you know are not representative of Jesus, is your faith somehow weakened? And you're like, I don't want to be a part of that. And so it's hard for you to claim any kind of a faith. It's hard for you to be a part of a church community because that's so ugly to you that you're repulsed by it. Are you letting crafty people, serpents with legs, cause distance and your relationship with God. One of the things I appreciated most, like I said about Rachel Held Evans, was as much as she expressed her questions and her doubts, and she did, and it was fantastic, and a lot of people have been inspired by her. At the same time, she said, I don't want to give up on Jesus. And she was a part of the church until the end. She didn't, she didn't chuck the whole thing because of crafty people, serpents with legs, that caused her to doubt and, and, and tempted her to, to not seek wisdom through her faith anymore. She resisted that temptation. All right, so where do you go for wisdom? Another question it asks is how, how can we create good and order in our country? How can we bring order out of chaos like we talked about last week and create good and order in our country? Back in 2004, I was serving in a church and I visited a, a World War II vet. And um, he was in a nursing home in the town where I, where I served in this church. And um, 
I went to see him, and I'd never met him before. He had been there the whole time you know, since I started working there. And I showed up, and um, he had uh, Parkinson's disease. It was pretty far along. Had a bad tremor. It was hard for him to talk. It was hard to walk. And he, he shook the entire time. But he was excited to hang out. God bless him. He needs to raise the standards for friends and pastors that visit him, I guess. But he was excited to hang out. And he wanted to go play pool. And so he went downstairs uh, in the nursing home. There was a pool table there. And he picked up a pool cue. And uh, his hands are shaking. And he bends over and he, he, he aims it at the cue ball. He makes contact with the cue ball. The ball almost went into the pocket. I'm like, man, you're pretty good. I'm like, you're, you've got Parkinson's and you're pretty good. You've done this before. And he kind of laughed and he, was, he, was, you know, he, he still kept his pride. This is a guy who's seen a lot in life. He told me about his life, his story. His, his wife had passed away several years before. And uh, we finished playing pool. We went back up to uh, his room. And uh, I was sitting in a chair next to this, this uh, uh, dresser with several drawers in it. And, uh, and he was sitting down next to me, and, and uh, he pointed at the bottom drawer, and he said, open it. And uh, so open this, this drawer here? Yeah, okay. And so I opened the drawer, and his clothes folded up, and then there was a, a blue plastic Walmart bag in, in this bottom drawer. And he said, it's in the bag, in the bag. I'm like, okay. So I pulled out, you know, who knows, right? A blue plastic Walmart bag. I pulled out the bag, open it, open it. He was super excited to show me. And I opened this blue plastic Walmart bag, and inside there was a large amount of bright red cloth folded up. Right? I mean, the brightest red cloth you've ever seen folded up in this bag. Take it out, take it out. And uh, so I took the cloth out of the bag, and I began to unfold it. And this is a very large piece, piece of cloth. And I found the center, and I held it up. And there was a, a large, bright red rectangular piece of cloth with a big white circle in the middle of it and a black swastika inside. He got that flag in the war. He told me the story. He, he, was, he was in the Army, U.S. Army, and fought in World War II. And uh, he got that flag somehow. He didn't give me the details. But he said he, he mailed it home to his wife. And she washed it in the washing machine, and she put it on the clothesline in the backyard. And all the neighbors, but here's, you wouldn't want to do that today now, would you? Uh, things have changed a little bit in the United States. Here's what it meant then. It meant, we're winning. We captured their flag. Our, 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 our men and women, they're winning. We're defeating this ideology that threatens the world. And, and they put that flag on, they said the neighbors loved it, like they were, yeah. They were cheering from the other, from the other you know, houses. And he was so proud to show me that flag. As, I, as I've thought about that story, I'm holding this flag up. What if the nurse had walked in at that moment? <laughs> uh, it's not what it looks like, I promise. She, okay, back to your bunker there, Adolf. Rally's over, pal. Uh, you wouldn't want to do that today, would you? Because you know, as we think about the floodwaters, the chaos, the same kinds of ideology that that generation fought has now emerged on our own soil. And we think about humans and temptation and conflict and, and decisions we have to make and seeking wisdom and what does it look like to live well and get along with each other and make the world better and partner with God to uh, order and to bring order and beauty out of the chaos. It seems like those floodwaters are pouring back in. How do we resist that temptation? 
the temptation to distrust and to hate and be, and be suspicious of other people who don't look like us or who don't believe the same things we do, even people who don't vote like us. You know, it doesn't mean they hold that ide ideology. Some people do, obviously. There's a synagogue shooting last week in San Diego. Some people do, but not everybody does. So how, like Rachel, can we build a bridge among common sense people, some, some middle majority of Americans, to find a way forward and keep those floodwaters of chaos at bay. Last question, and then we're going to have communion together. Last question I think that Genesis asks us, and that's not about science, is why are you still carrying so much shame? Why are you still carrying so much shame? Adam and Eve, the very first thing that happens, once they eat the fruit, they feel shame. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Why are you carrying so much shame? Are you carrying shame because of crafty serpents with legs that have made you somehow feel like they're in and you're out? They're deserving of God's grace, but you are not. Like, like Rachel experienced um, when she started asking some questions, it turns out there were some people who weren't very happy about that. And there was a lot of opposition. Can you identify with that? Are there very crafty people who have looked at you and, and the questions that you have as you express your faith and your doubts and you try to figure it all out and they're like, oh, I don't know about you. Uh, I think that, that maybe we're in and you're out. The questions that you've asked, they, they put you on the outside of the can. Or maybe it's just who you are, something about you, somebody didn't like, and maybe they were pretty crafty. And now there's a sense of shame that causes you to be distant from God, to be afraid and to hide. Why are you still carrying so much shame when God realizes they're naked and they sewed some fig leaves together? And if you think about it, figs leave, fig leaves, they wither. Not the, not the longest lasting piece of clothing. Probably a little drafty. What does God do when they, when they leave the garden? There are consequences. They leave the garden. But what does God do? They're, they're naked and they're ashamed. What does God do? Does he say, Psh, you deserved it? Well, you know, you shouldn't ask that question. You get, what you, you, know, you get what you got coming to you now. Is that what God does? No. They're naked. They're ashamed. What does God do? Here's some clothes. That's a statement about who God is. There may have been some very crafty people that have said things to you. Maybe, maybe in God's name. But what God does is he, he finds people who are naked and ashamed and he gives them clothes. He, he takes away the source of their shame. He meets them where they are. Doesn't beat them down further. Oh, you feel ashamed. Think about that now. And the world we live in and the way that some of you have experienced church and religion, God says, oh, you're naked, you're ashamed. Here's some clothes. That's who God is. So as we take communion in a moment, communion is, a, is another way of dramatizing who God is. Jesus gives his life on the cross. Um, for us, in the face of a domination empire who killed people for disagreeing, who killed people for having the wrong set of questions about what they were doing. Jesus questioned what they were doing. He was killed for it. It's another way of saying, though, you don't have to carry shame. The cross was meant to shame Jesus. That's what the cross was an instrument of shame. And, he said, and Paul says in Philippians, he shamed the shame. 
Who are the crazy people here? The guy hanging on the cross or the people who pound nails into people's hands and feet? He shames the violence. He shames the people who want to say, I'm, I'm in and you're out. And he shames the people who want to shame you in his act of love on the cross. And so that's what we're going to take part in during this last song. Band, you come on up. And I want to encourage you, take a look at this quote. Unhealthy religion is based on shame and guilt. Healthy religion or spirituality or whatever you want to call it is based on love. A, a, a God who says, I care about you enough, I love you enough, oh, are, you, are you ashamed? Let's, let's take away your shame. Let's address the root cause of your shame. These are the kinds of questions that Genesis seems to ask.